Good afternoon, everyone. We have the illustrative, the demonstrative, the amazing Mike Diamond with me as my co-host from the very beginning, pre-COVID even, as we are on episode 569 of Office Hours. That's not including the TV. Uh, we're planning season six in the TV show. We're launching season five uh, pretty soon here. So we, we're rocking and rolling with Office Hours commensurate with the amazing guests that we always have we're starting off with a powerhouse henna priors here she is a workplace performance expert of course an international global keynote speaker and talking about the good awkward which is her new book um there's so many cringeworthy things out there i'm not going to mention names mike but you and i have seen the cringiest of cringe uh, and have recorded that last night. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, it, it is a new world in the bravest you that she writes about. Uh, Hen, I, I, I want to start with a, an interesting, uh, I think, question for me at least is, you know, where does embarrassing uh, cross the line? You know, yeah. that, you know, I understand self-awareness and self-cringe. And, you know, I, I always say the first uh, season of, Two Minute Drill, which is my pitch only show that was on Bloomberg, it was cringeworthy. And it took a brave me to do that. But as much as that was cringeworthy, good, awkward, embarrassing, uh, there's a difference between that type of cringeworthy when something just isn't up to par or up to your satisfaction compared to like truly cringeworthy things that I see on the internet. Where's that line drawn for a good, awkward compared to a bad, awkward? <laughs> Yeah, I love this question. For the purposes of what we're talking about, the, the what you're describing is to me it sounds almost like intentionally cringeworthy. Like I'm I'm putting it out there and pushing a limit to see what may occur. And that could be good, that could be bad, but in the context of what we're talking about, good awkward or good embarrassment or good cringe is less intentional than that. It's a little less overt than that. It's more of that natural happenstance you know, awkwardness is a social emotion. It is an emotion of discomfort. And most of the time when we experience it organically, we're not planning for it to go down that way. Sometimes we push those boundaries. And we kind of know it's going to go that way. We're not necessarily talking about those moments here. Do, do you think it comes down to self-awareness as well? You know, some people are really, they're just, they're just unaware and they do things and you're like, uh, yeah. You're not really ready for that. And they put the, keep putting themselves out there and you're like, it's going to land bad. Do you think self, how much self-awareness is involved in that? It plays a huge role. So the definition I use in the book and in the conversation around awkwardness is awkwardness is the emotion that we feel when the person we believe ourselves to be, our true self, is momentarily facing a gap with the person that other people see on display. In other words, our internal identity for a moment doesn't match that external reality. And in that gap space in between, most neurotypical people feel the emotion of awkwardness. Now, some people don't realize those two people look different, right? We might believe ourselves to be one way and we think that's who other people see too. That's where that self-awareness goes sideways. But oftentimes when we don't you know, have that experience, we can tend to feel or tend to notice, okay, I think I'm this, I think I'm smart, I think I'm capable and yet I mispronounce this person's name horribly. And now who they see is this incompetent, uncaring, reckless person. And for a moment, or maybe a few moments, depending on our tolerance for awkwardness, 
we experience that emotion right there in the middle. And you bring up a really interesting point, which I'm working on to help empower, especially young people and within the context of social media, there's a huge gap between who I am and who I want people to think I am. So now it's the inverted understanding that we have a huge gap of wanting people to think I am. Uh, How does that interplay with the good court? Yeah, there's a huge impact here that's happening in the moment in time that we live in. And I think it was exacerbated by the pandemic. So there's two things happening. First thing is, as a society, and this started well before the pandemic, we are experiencing a weakening of our social musculature. And this is thanks to a lot of the advances. You know, in a given day, if I wanted to, I can order my dinner on DoorDash. I can text my colleagues and Slack them. I don't actually have to talk to them. I can swipe if I want to go on a date. I'm happily married, but I could, right? Uh, My daughter the other day picked up a friend at her house and she didn't ring the doorbell. She sat in the driveway and she said, mom, we're supposed to text here, right? We're supposed to just text that we're here. So what's happening is we don't get these daily moments of repetition, so social situations, social social musculature is already declining. And so what's happening is that we learned the emotion of awkwardness actually begins around age eight, seven or eight, eight or nine adolescence, where that's about when we start looking for our self-image, our self-identity through the lens of who do other people see? All of a sudden, we're more self-conscious. Who do other people see? And even now, adults, young adults or grown adults, because we're not getting that social practice, we're starting to feel that again. It's kicking up. All of a sudden, we're putting our who do other people see? Do they like what they see based on likes, based on comments, based on these things? Because again, we've lost lost the practice. We've lost the muscle. So, you know, going into that, like your authentic self calls you, your environment is not set up for you to thrive. Then there's that awkward moment where you have to go out of your comfort zone and stretch, right? That's good awkward. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage. Now, because like you said, that social muscle, like let's just tech, we don't, we don't confront those things. How do you, when you coach people, teach people? Cause you can't, people always talk about resilience. You can't teach res- resilience. You become resilient. Yes. I love that you, you know said that. that. Yeah. You know yeah. So, so how, how do you teach that? Yeah. You're spot on Mike. It's, it's a two-parter. First of all is taking a moment to understand the stories we tell ourselves about awkward moments. Awkwardness is tied to approval, right? We feel awkward when we think, oh, somebody else doesn't approve of how I walked down the street just now and tripped, or somebody else doesn't approve of the way I showed up in that meeting. So first, it's just examining that moment where I felt that embarrassment, that cringe for an hour in my body. What is the story I'm attaching to that? But the second part, which you just started to allude to, is conditioning. It's conditioning. It's practice. And so when we are at the grocery store, and rather than even being willing to catch someone's eye and smile, we immediately take out our phone and look down at it, we've lost an opportunity to put in a rep. When we're at the coffee shop or on the subway and we have our headphones in, rather than being willing to have a two-second conversation with a neighbor, we've lost an opportunity to put in a rep. So to me, this is intentionality. And now leaders and, and parents, they have to make this intentional. We have to be very careful to over-index now because the opportunities aren't presenting themselves as naturally as they did in a previous life. And just to finish up, as we talk about this musculature, uh, this lost art, you know, I look at three things that are integrating into allowing people to embrace the embarrassing and 
to be a brave you or to understand in an existential way who I am. So AI obviously could be blamed as a master for this separate uh, diminishing capacity. Um, but there's two capabilities that I really am stressing in the, uh, the workplace, but also for children. And, and one is reading. Um, mm. I think that we don't read and therefore people are fooled easily because the more that we read, not only do we learn human nature, but we learn the subtleties of language. And mm -hmm. those subtleties in that language, which is going to be extremely important in the future, especially in the workplace. Uh, and then, of course, you've already touched on social skills, uh, teaching people to look people in the eye, uh, mm -hmm. to actually hug a person, to smile, uh, to speak in an elegant, fluent way, and to keep your head and chin up instead of looking at your phone all day. So I'm more interested in how we utilize not technology, but traditional communication tools in order to effectuate becoming brave in who we are. Yeah, I love that you're man after my heart on this. I think 100% accurate. And I, I read something recently that reminds me of what you just said. Reading carefully is the new listening. Reading mm. carefully is the new listening. There's nuance in words and not everyone's as eloquent as the next, right? But we owe that to people now to read between the lines if we don't understand, to ask questions. But sometimes, again, people are so afraid of getting it wrong of the awkwardness of, is that what they meant? That we don't at all. And that musculature is suffering immensely because of it. It's not everyone, but it's it's more often than not these days. Which makes it interesting. And we're going to have you back on other shows and <laughs> the world needs more of you. But I, I love the fact that you can use AI to actually help us read. Uh, yeah. You know, there's I've been reading The Course in Miracles for eight years. And there's so many times just out of lazy I've looked at a word, you know, for example, uh, salvation, right? Mm -hmm. I assumed I understood the definition of salvation, but ChatGPT, I can, in, in the context of the Course of Miracles, what's the definition or the context or content of the word salvation? And it just brings out so much from what I've been reading. And, you know, people still are using technology as a master not a servant. I've been blessed to be in technology since 92. I've been teaching and preaching and screaming, hey, this is the greatest servant we've ever been given, these technologies, yeah. whether it was the original Boolean language searching engine that you know allowed us to, to search things uh, to today with the extraordinary capability and processing of AI. But these are great servants. Uh, the problem is, as most lazy people, we want it to be our master and to tell us mm -hmm. the truth and tell us what to do. Uh, good Awkward, it is a very important read, and I'm encouraging everyone to read. If you haven't embraced the embarrassing, if you aren't celebrating the cringe uh, to become the I am, the bravest you, then this is a great place to start. Uh, Henna, please promise us uh, you are a priority for us. You're with the priority group. I like uh, what no you did there. Anyway, I had a <laughs> little cringe, nauseous. little cringy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mike loves it. Uh, almost as cringy as his thumbs up. Uh, Come up then. And a prior priority group. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Happy holidays. Thanks. Happy holidays. That so was cool. awesome. I really, that conversation was great. Uh, well, you know, you thought we had the best, but it aligned with the cringeworthy. 
the best is here. So we're outdoing ourselves once again with the best of the best founder and CEO of Seed and Spark, uh, Alana's finest. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we are so appreciative. And I'm going to be in Atlanta uh, up here at the end of the month in between my trip to uh, Florida and Nashville, a quick stopover. So hopefully we can all get together um, and uh, really make an impact. But uh, Seed and Spark is a crowdfunding platform uh, that creates DI and allows everyone to participate uh, in allowing everyone to participate in a profitable, passionate, and pur purposeful project, which really uh, has encouraged both Michael and I to have you on. Uh, give me a few stories of how exactly the platform has allowed uh, greater diversity and inclusion uh, in the entertainment uh, space. Yeah, wow. I mean, we're, we're just tipping into year 12 now. Um, so we certainly do have a lot of them, more than a thousand projects funded just in 2023. Um, and we have the most demographically and geographically diverse pipeline that we know of. Um, we've, we've compared it to as many platforms as we can scrape data and um, it appears uh, we're in more cities and certainly representing more perspectives. I mean, you know, this time of year, because we're coming up to Sundance Film Festival, I think of um, all of the films throughout the years that have made their way to uh, Sundance last year, this incredible short film called Headdress um, by a really wonderful native filmmaker named Tyler Clare. Um, a, uh, um, this year, there is a short film that crowdfunded on Seed and Spark that got turned into a feature film because of the success of the short. Um, called Pony Boy, uh, an incredible filmmaker named River Gallo, um, who will be bringing this really beautiful uh, trans story to Sundance this year. Um, but like I could do that a thousand more times. <laughs> and I really think that um, part of it just has to do with um, Seed and Spark has a very different approach to creator crowdfunding than other platforms. And I think um, if you'll allow me, it's because we resisted some of the um, proclivities of big tech. So big tech wants like a big vertically integrated platform that kind of serves all your needs in one place. And so um, a lot of the earliest movers in crowdfunding kind of did it with big tech DNA, meaning they were like, come here, we will supply you with the audience and just launch it. If you build it on our platform, they will come. And the problem is like, that's not, crowdfunding is not uh, a technology. Crowdfunding is a community effort. It can be technology enabled, right? But it is not, it is not something that has a technology solution, meaning the really important crowd, part of crowdfunding, which is like activating and building an authentic relationship with your audience, um, can be enabled by technology. It can, cannot be replaced by technology. And so we took a really different approach, which was we are going to teach creators how to use the technology to build independent, sustainable careers. Mm -hmm. And so instead of 
building like big, you know, spending a ton of money on technology and a ton of money on growth marketing. We went out on the road starting in 2013. And ever since then, we've been teaching 100 to 150 live workshops a year all over the country and the world, um, teaching creators how to use the tools of crowdfunding uh, to build their own independent, sustainable careers. So when a creator succeeds on Seed and Spark, and we have the highest campaign success rate in the world by a mile, we um, we have an 80% campaign success rate. And I think the next closest platform is like 43% campaign success rate. Um, we have the highest campaign success rate in the world, but when a creator succeeds on Seed and Spark, it's because of what they did. So we don't get to claim their success. They get to say, Seed and Spark helped me be successful. Um, and I think that's really been kind of part of the magic along the way. Um, and we, we learned really, really early after launch that creators of color, creators outside major markets, um, LGBTQ creators, like they were not seeing the same kind of success. People, people who simply don't come from well-resourced communities, they were not seeing the kind of success in crowdfunding as creators were seeing on other platforms. So we knew we were going to have to build differently. And that's why we went out in service of educating creators how to use crowdfunding to really like remove societal roadblocks. And like, it's not, a, it's not magic, right? It takes a ton of hard work. Um, but I really do think that's what set us apart. I mean, before it's... I let you, uh, hold on, Mike, before I let you, I just have to point something out because as you know, I'm creating a fund that only takes men's money to fund women and women of color. It's a Amazing. unique fund that I created. <laughs> and I have to say quickly because if I slow down in the first part, people get pissed off before I give them what, what money. <laughs> you only take men's money? What are you? Oh, no. I only take men's money to fund women and women of color because, and it's not unique to crowdfunding, you know, it was less than 3% of capital went to women and women of color, although 71% of the world is women and, and, and people of color, and less than 3% of the people like that are funded. Uh, but now it's below 2%. And I believe if you take out graduates of Stanford, uh, it's below 1%. Uh, oh, so, uh, you know, it, it is a very important thing to put money uh, into diversity inclusion, and especially in the entertainment space, which is multi-trillions of dollars that going influences people's perspectives right. and enlighten them because that's how people learn today. As much as I want them to read Emily, uh, yeah. or not going to turn the clock back and, and sell a shitload of books and get these kids to read, but they will watch short movies and short films and right. films and TV uh, streaming. They they'll they'll continue to do that. So sorry, but I had to interject that because it's so important what you're doing and you. it's completely reflective. Uh, I always say forgiveness is a reflection of love. It is reflective of the love that we need to give. Uh, important industry um and mike's worked in it for a long time so go ahead mike sorry for interrupting i just love about you is you've had such a diverse background and no i'm serious and i think people need to understand this people think it's a one-shot deal like they go to school or they fail or they can't do it and i came from a film background acting and i do interventions now and i'm on tv shows doing interventions and i now I have an intervention thing going on. I'm like, people are like, what? You went to acting school? Can you explain to me when, in 2013, you said you made that decision? But 
what sparked it? You know, you're inspired to, because you, yeah. you're educating people. People don't do that. People yeah. don't want to educate people. That's a really special thing that you're doing. So 2011, 2010, 2011, I made my first feature film. And we decided to use crowdfunding because every sexist thing you can imagine was said to this group of women filmmakers trying to tell stories that reflected women's experiences. Every sexist thing you can imagine was said to us um, uh, along the way. And it just made it clear that the gatekeepers really felt like the only valuable content was content that was for a white male audience and everybody else belonged to a niche. Um, and it devalued our work and it um, undermined potential investment. I mean, you name it. So um, we made this film. We decided not to use one of the big crowdfunding platforms because they weren't big yet. They were brand new. And um, we also wanted a different way for our audience to understand how to get involved. So we built a wedding registry, right? We listed the individual items we needed and how much money they would cost. Um, and we sent it out to everyone we knew. And we were we had the benefit back then of the open social graph. Back then, Facebook and Twitter like showed all your stuff to everyone. And so it was a lot easier to sort of go viral. And it became really popular. And we had 458 people contribute not just money, but goods and services to the campaign. So where we asked for $20,000, when you added up all of the value we were able to raise from our community, it was like $220,000 in total value. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, there's there's something here. And then I started getting calls from creators all over the country about like, how do we do this? So I didn't start Seed and Spark because I was ready to like be an entrepreneur. I started Seed and Spark because of how many creators I was teaching to do the thing that I did. And after a while, somebody was like, you know, that's like a business. <laughs> um, that's a, that's a plat, that's called a platform. And I think you might be an entrepreneur. And that was really what took me off in that direction. Um, I just want to say also, David, to, to what you were talking about before, uh, in 2021, we started packaging the incredible short cinema coming out of our universe. And we built a new platform called Film Forward which is a corporate education platform. So we've built experiential learning, built around existing short cinema to replace all of the boring, terrible corporate training, uh, all of that terrible soft skills training, uh, leadership training, innovation, DEI. Um, we're now doing it as experiential learning built around the very same short cinema that's getting made by our community um, and generating a totally new revenue stream back to the creators. But what you said to me was so important, which is that people need to see these films. Yeah. Um, and it's and they need to see them like directly from the perspectives of the creators who make them. Um, and so I think we're, we're sort of closing the loop now from how we really entered the market educating filmmakers to allowing the filmmakers content to come back and educate the community. That's brilliant. And Emily, before I let you go, and we'll have you back on other shows because it's so important what you're doing. Thank on you. the film forward side, um, one of the things that I think is needed for the white middle-aged man, as a white middle-aged man, is there, there needs to be a film uh, in that uh, arena called Unlearned. And, and what yeah. I mean by that is yes. we, 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 we need to be, in, in fairness, to really open-minded, open-hearted, and open-handed white middle-aged men, we, we need to have uh, something put into perspective of, 
hey, here's an opportunity for someone with good intentions, you know, that may have three daughters like me and beautiful wife and all things that, that I'm trying to empower in the world before I leave it. Hey, here's how we unlearn things. And it has no negative connotations or attack to it. It's just, hey, I'm sorry, but over your 55 years, you've been conditioned to be an asshole. And here's how we learn an asshole. And uh, you don't have to use my words, but I just have to put it out there because it's really something I'm not very talented at this, but I would love to talk addressed in the corporate world uh, of unlearning things. I think that copy is ready for print personally. Like I like the name of the curriculum and I am perfectly happy to like, we will help you unlearn how to be an asshole. Um, I think what you're saying is so important. My husband and I talk about this all the time. I'm married to a white man, right? Some of my best friends are white men. Um, uh, the unlearning- Sure, you're just so, saying that. <laughs> the unlearning is such an essential part. I mean, white women too, like I'm not letting us off the hook, right? Um, yeah. But the unlearning piece is is so, so essential. And um, I think it's a really different uh, framework to, because the the revealing of what you have learned and your attachment to it can make people feel so vulnerable. Um, and it's part of why I think story-based learning is so important because if you can witness the transformation in someone else, it's a lot easier to imagine the transformation for yourself. Um, and I think that's part of why the this, the narrative-based learning, this experiential-based learning is so crucial. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for the work you're doing. Hopefully we can connect when I get to Atlanta at the end of the I month. If there's anything we can do, there's more shows that we have uh, in the world needs more understanding and awareness to what you're doing. Congratulations, seedandspark.com. Learn more, learn more about Emily Best. You lived up to your name. Thank you. Thank you so much. Nice to see you. Take care. Take care. Thank you. That's awesome. All right. Now you thought that Emily Best was best, but I'm a big fan of David. So uh, I don't know why it seems like the best name that you could be given. It means love in the way. <laughs> and so uh, we have our next beloved guest, David Hauser in the house, uh, founder of Grasshopper uh, and Chargeify and Vanilla. He's in Las Vegas. So hopefully we'll see him next week. I'll be with Dane Cook at all. So hopefully we'll see him there on January 9th and 10th. We have a CES mastermind, Mike, which, you know, you're invited to the crew is all coming out. So hopefully you can drive your way out to see me in Vegas. Uh, and uh, also a YPOer. So we got a lot in common, David. Serial entrepreneur, speaker, angel investor, uh, bootstrapped his way to over $30 million in AR. Uh, unbelievable uh, what you've been able to do. Welcome to Office Up. Uh, th thanks for having me. Um, you know, we just have to fill the room with more Davids and we'll be okay. Sorry, Mike, uh, but we're trying. <laughs> Yeah, Mike Unbroken's not here. He's another Vegas guy. So I don't know if you know him, but we'll make that. In, we could at least be two for two. Um, give us an idea just uh, where things have changed over the last three years. Obviously, great experience in the venture world. Understanding as an entrepreneur, the funding and bootstrapping of, of what you've been able to do. Uh, the atmosphere has changed, uh, but I still think the cream rises to the top. How do you see opportunity today? Uh, in the investment world uh, with the changing in the economy and the world security, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. Like, I'm always kind of just biased towards bootstrapping. And I think that 
a lot of people spend too much time thinking about why and how to raise capital when the vast majority of businesses, they don't really need to raise capital. But there are times that it makes sense. Right. And I think to your point, you know, the, the best companies are still raising capital. Right. I think what has fallen out on the bottom is things that probably shouldn't have gotten funded anyway. Right. Like ideas that were already out there and someone just creating another competitor, all these different things that should never have gotten funded. Um, but if you take vanilla, for example, we raised 42 plus million dollars in a very difficult time um, from insight partners and others like but that was a you know, we, we built a really intriguing brand new concept for wealth management um, and, you know, reporting and all of those pieces we built there. That's why it got funded. Right. Yeah. And do you think the like Dan talking about hard times and that, do you think when you, you, you said it's something there that some of these things shouldn't have got funded? Do you think that's the biggest problem sometimes that it's just some things just shouldn't get funded and people are just delusional? Because you see things sometimes you're like, that's not going to work and it gets funded and then it crashes. Like, what's yeah. that fine line? Like, what, what do you look for? What do you look for? And I think, too, like, we're also living on subsidized things that don't have a real business model, right? Um, because people were in the past funding things that shouldn't have got funded, right? Those are starting to fall off. And I think we'll see that happen quicker and quicker in the next kind of year or so. Um, but, you know, what I really look for from an investment standpoint is very unique, right? Like, I look for someone who has product market fit um, and is breaking even or profitable, right? Because to me, that means they don't have to raise capital again. And the reason that they're raising capital today is much more about access, knowledge, learning, right? Than the capital itself, right? So I look at like, how can I add value to that company outside of the dollars? Like that's what matters to me. And if there's not a fit there, I'll pass. David, one of the things that's interesting is effective uh, education. Uh, a lot of my uh, more branded entrepreneur friends uh, maybe didn't go to college or I think they miscommunicate the idea of going to college. Now, you went to one of the first entrepreneurial schools in America, the top one, Babson, and so you have entrepreneurial perspective. But what I like about your background, which I share with you, is that we distinguish the difference between going to college and learning. And my greatest fear is through the rhetoric and branding of some of the greatest entrepreneurs, they're being misinterpreted by the young entrepreneur that education and learning is not important. <clears throat> college may not be important anymore. Uh, there certain things I would, I send all my kids to college for the experience, but as far as education and learning, it's never been more important to be a fast learner and education is more important than ever, but you necessarily don't have to get it in college anymore. Uh, how important is learning to you today as one of the leading entrepreneurs in America that maybe can communicate more effectively what some of my friends I think are misquoted or misinterpreted? Yeah, I mean, I think understanding how to learn is the most critical skill. And if I think back to my kind of background, you know, I struggled tremendously with reading and writing and went to a tutor for five days a week. Luckily, my parents had the resources to send me when I was younger, but I was many years behind. But the gift that I got from that was learning how I learn, right? And I can apply that in college, not in college, online. It doesn't really matter what the medium is. I understood that I'm a visual learner and an auditory learner. I understood how to consume information, how to distill information, and how to retain it, right? So 
when others were cramming for tests, like I just didn't pay attention to that because I had understood how I needed to consume that information. And you bring up an interesting point about Babson because I get asked this a lot, like, you know, does Babson create entrepreneurs? And I actually controversially say no, right? Like I think what Babson does very well is build a set of skills that are helpful for entrepreneurs, how to read a balance sheet, how to do uh, HR, how to do this, how to do that. Right. That's what you can educate and learn a set of skills that, that help you. You can't teach someone to be an entrepreneur. Right. And when you look at the actual graduating class of Babson, the vast majority of people are not actually traditional entrepreneurs as we know them. They're actually entrepreneurs. Right. Where they go to a big company and they apply these skills within a large company very effectively. And that's a great thing to teach. But that's not typically what we think of as an entrepreneur. And then going back to what Dave said, like people think because someone says don't go to college, but still, if you're in college around a great group of people, it's a great incubator to learn. And what you just said brilliantly there was entrepreneur. People think that, oh, I'm just going to be an entrepreneur because Dave Meltzer's an entrepreneur, Dave, you know, and all these people. And there's like, you know, they look at the 30 year career or the guy may have worked as a CEO and been a great entrepreneur. So if someone comes to you, how do you reframe that perspective? Like, there's no shortcuts up this hill. It's hard work. You can't cut your way to the front because once you get in a room with really good savage people, entrepreneurs, they smell you out. So how do you teach that to people? Yeah, I don't know if that's a skill you can necessarily teach. That's something inherently that's in people, right? And, you know, I think you can coach and push people beyond what their normal limits are, um, but they have to have that base kind of just desire, right? And and I hate when people call it risk-taking because it's not about risk-taking, right? Entrepreneurs are risk calibrators, not risk-takers. And they really think about how do I create the biggest benefit for the smallest amount of risk? They're not just out there willy-nilly taking risks, right? And I think that's the problem that people don't necessarily understand, or at least our general media perspective doesn't always share appropriately. And last question, David, and I'm really looking forward, hopefully, to getting together with you next week when I'm in Vegas or if you're around. But I want to talk about the emotional aspect. Um, you guide and motivate, not just with YPOs, but entrepreneurs. And when you speak, I can hear and understand a different perspective when it comes to the emotional side of being an entrepreneur. I have a saying, the most common denominator of successful entrepreneurs is simply the desire that they must be what they can be. Uh, because we know they're not going to quit uh, or they'll uh, transition or expand their business to a different area. And so that's not quitting um, for you. How do you teach or what tip that you have of many for the emotional aspect that kills some great entrepreneurs careers? Yeah, I, I get asked this a lot, especially when I'm speaking. And, and for me, it's always about action, right? Like what are the small actions you can take today and it's not about talking and it's about doing, right? And it sounds really simple, but I think a lot of people get caught up in this talking stage and then they get sucked into the business plan and NDAs and all this crap, right? Rather than just going out there and selling something to a customer, right? And saying, you know what? It's okay if I fail, it's fine. I'm gonna learn something, right? Like, I think it's just that first little step that a lot of people fall down on. So my advice is always just start doing something, anything. 
Einstein had the same exact advice, right? Nothing happens until it moves. So start moving. Uh, an incredible entrepreneur, an incredible investor, incredible speaker. David Hauser, a blessing to have you here. Founder of Grasshopper, Chargeify, Vanilla, many others been able to raise millions and millions of dollars and keep it. I had difficulty doing it at his age, and it's good to see that people have learned from the dummy tax of others. Please promise us you'll come back. If you're around next week at CES, let me know. We got a really killer dinner I'd like to invite you to and get to meet you in person. Hopefully, Mike will join us as well. Thanks for joining us on Officers. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. You got it, man. Thank you, David. All right. Two for two with the Davids. Where's the mics? I am not sure. I'm looking for Luca. Give me a thumbs up if uh, our we're going to take a fourth guest. Is Andy here? Thumbs up. Yes. All right. Bring it in. I don't see Andy here, but I will trust. Reluca. Andy will will jump on uh, Shirley. They just didn't have the link, so I just sent it to his team, so he should be here shortly. She's in a bunker in Romania right now. Oh, Are there you he is. Short? short? Is it always Pretty much. Mike? David, you're short. Oh, you're short, and Andy's coming. Oh, my, oh my God. <laughs> what and a way here. to start my year. And we promoted Reluca. She's an executive producer, an incredible asset to, as you know, uh, uh, and we're going to be launching this without Reluca, because where where are you right now, Reluca? In Romania. <laughs> Hold on. Reluca's in I'm, Romania. I'm, yeah, one in the morning, right? One in, one the, in the morning, right? One thirty-nine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and Michael's supposed to be unbroken. Has taken more benches than anyone I know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what Michael unbroken. And where is that? Is that guy sleeping or is he helping? No, he's actually next to me. He would not leave me to uh, this by myself. That guy, tell that guy so. I love him. Enjoy Romania. <laughs> Andy Lefkowitz in the house. Bring him on. Thank you so for, for right. She's so great. He's beautiful. I know. Oh, but we'll have to thank Andy uh, for coming on here. CEO of Locus Fermentation Solutions. I have something, Mike, today about fermentation. And it's a huge market. I had no idea. 71 billion or more. Uh, in this uh, amazing field. Wow. Uh, another Buckeye from uh, Ohio, Andy Lefkowitz. Thanks for joining us on Off Hours. My pleasure. Good to be from, are you, are you, are you an Ohioan? I am Akron, an Akronite, born in the same hospital, LeBron James and Steph Curry. You would think I'd be the uh, commissioner of NBA by now, but uh, I've developed this uh, great platform instead to, promote great entrepreneurs like yourself that are changing the world. Thanks. Let's talk about not the size, scope, and scale of global fermentation, but the importance of it uh, and the sustainable aspects of it and talking about uh, changing or saving our world. Um, locusts produce uh, amazing ingredients. Uh, why and how is fermentation going to help us sustain our environment, improve it, in fact? Um. Gosh, that's a big question. Um, you know, ferment, for, we invented chemicals because we didn't understand biologics. We didn't know how to make, you know, biology get up on its hind legs and, you know, bark like a dog. And now we can do that. Um, so there's a lot of things that biology can do better than chemicals. So, for instance, when you have a chemical to do, to do a job, it's like a hammer. It can do, do it one way. And so things become resistant to that, whereas a biological ingredient will typically have multiple 
mechanisms of action to uh, uh, go after a result and provide you know many results or many benefits um, depending on you know what it's asked to do. Um, so and it's just it's just in so many different um, businesses. I mean, our us alone. I mean, we we started the business. Um, with the idea that um, there were mechanisms of action of certain organisms that could do amazing things. And when we found that they could do one thing, we knew they could do it in one industry. We knew they could do it in another. So, for instance, we started a, a business where we were putting uh, the byproducts of, of, of non-GMO organisms down oil wells to get more oil out of the well. And we've come a long way since then. We've got been certified as... Uh, uh, reducing the carbon footprint of oil because you could put up fracking and drilling, but we and, but we knew once you could take more oil out of rock, you could take more ore out of rock. So we're, we built a very exciting mining business where and we have organisms that supercharge other chemicals and produce better uh, recovery of of, uh, of ores at a lower carbon footprint. So you're getting you know you're getting better economics and better environmental benefits along the way. But I, I would just caution you and say, when we talk to our clients, whether it's ag or oil or mining or metalworking fluids, it's all about, can we make our clients more money? Uh, can we save them money? And oh, by the way, it's green, right? So yeah, right, right, right. No matter who it is. Yeah, it seems the chemicals dictate in the bio uh, manufacturing of things or bio-integration is more collaborative uh, in what it does in, in nature. So I, I think it's interesting that we still have to use sustainability as an afterthought and a marketing goal, uh, but whatever way we use it, as long as we're using it, it's good by me. Yeah, even in like agriculture. So we've got a product called Rhizolizer, which is a combination of a couple of different organisms. And we've shown it in 24 different crop types that it increases yield. It doesn't matter if it's strawberries or corn or soybeans. And one of the byproducts is that we are showing greater sequestration of carbon, tons per acre, you know, five to 10 times greater carbon sequestration than regenerative farming, you know, cover crops and, you know, no-till, low-till. Um, so we were... Uh, getting great sequestration data, and we're getting we're showing reductions in nitrous oxide emissions in farming, which is, you know, uh, 300 times worse on a per ton basis than than carbon. But when we go to a farmer and say, you know, you should use our material to, uh, you know, uh, on your fields, uh, it's always well, how much more money am I going to make? Can I use? Can I get greater yield? Can I use less water? Um, and oh, and by the way, we're gonna uh, we've got a program with a couple of partners. We'll buy your carbon credits. We'll sell them. Uh, you'll get a portion of that, and you'll have a, a new income stream uh, besides for the crop that you're growing. But it's but the first thing their eyes glaze over if you don't start with we can make you more money like you know with the basic product. Andy, you you also do pro probiotics, correct? Pardon. You do probiotics? Is that well, my last business was called uh, Ganadin Biotech. Yeah. Uh, we built a probiotic brand uh, called Digestive Advantage and, and uh, was in 60,000 stores. Uh, we built that up and sold it to uh, TPG, Texas Pacific Group, which is a really nice exit for everybody. And then we pivoted yeah. 
and we became the de facto supplier of probiotics into food and beverage. And we sold that business in uh, 2017, uh, got 16 offers, um, you know, very high multiples. And we were the de facto product for, you know, Coke, Pepsi, General's Kellogg's, Mondelez, Nestle, in six, 800 products in, in 65 countries. And we sold that business. Uh, and then we had a, a bit of a non-compete. Uh, we've actually gone back and we're doing a little bit of uh, work in that area again. Uh, but we're primarily a, you know, in a B2B business in industrial applications. Uh, although we're, uh, as they say in Texas, we're, we're fixing to get back into the to the probiotic business. Well, it's so important, the probiotics. I have ulcerated colitis and right. I can go to Europe. I was born in Australia, but I go to Europe and I can eat anything and never get sick. But then I hear I've got to be meticulous in my diet, take probiotics and be very. So I'm saying what probiotics is so important for people's gut health, mental health, spiritual health. Like, so when you said that, it's like knowing what to take and not being so chemically driven with the foods, it's killing us. Right. And also even in the probiotic space, there's a lot of, there's a lot of marketing, right? Yeah. And so when we sold our business, our probiotic business, we had <clears throat> 27 studies published in peer reviewed journals. We showed increase in serotonin levels, which is mood. We showed so decreases good, in yeah. C-reactive protein, which would be very important to you, which is inflammation. Um, and uh, and then we had 135 study, 135 issued patents. And so our business today, uh, we've got uh, you know a couple hundred, close to a couple hundred issued patents, but we filed 1,400 patents, creating moats around moats of our business because we got in really early. I mean, we started filing patents in, in these industrial applications of using essentially probiotics in agriculture or, or mining or other businesses. Um, way before everybody else but it's 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 a lot about the data and you gotta you know you gotta prove things out with a mechanism of action that you know people can understand and uh, and and grab for i love the balance and reconciliation being one of the greatest business people here in america and well uh, awarded even as entrepreneur of the year by and why yeah. uh, but in the end, you can do well and do good. Why I wanted you on here is more young people need to see great leaders that make a lot of money to help a lot mm -hmm. of people. And still, no matter how old we get, we can still have a lot of fun doing it. And we need more people to look up to the veterans, the iconic entrepreneurs and leaders, executives like Andy Lefkowitz, CEO of Locust for me. Fermentation Solutions. Check out locusfs.com. You'll get an idea of how we can do well and do good at the same time. Thank you for changing our world. Thank you for helping us all sustain what we've built uh, and will continue to grow and to learn with people like Andy Lefkowitz. Please come back. I look forward to seeing you when I'm in Ohio. Uh, but beyond that, we have other shows yeah. To, to elevate your brand and awareness. We'd love, we'd love to do it. Right? We'd love to tell the story. I love it. Thank, thanks Thank so much. you so much. Incredible. Wow. Wow. Three for three. These are pretty impactful people. Four. Like, four we had four. You know, after 569 episodes, it's amazing. We can attract some of uh, the world leaders on here, sometimes on the same episode. Uh, pretty cool. I'm very impressed. Um, but more importantly, we've had three... Uh, 
three, four great minds. Sorry, I'm losing track. Great minds. Right. What's your takeaway of the day from those great minds? I mean, you know what really resonated with me? You know, everyone was about serving. And because they served with their mission, their status improved. So it's service will improve your status. Don't try to improve your status, right? And not serve. Everyone was so service driven. It's incredible. It was just my, it was what a, what an episode of just people helping people. It was incredible. Yeah. It's that community. That's what I take away from it. And these are communities of people and built in different platforms, you know, completely yeah. different, divergent. A lot of times we have the same exact kind of genre, but I think the common denominator thread takeaway that I get from it is that when you build a community in that mission, you have a community of people that do two things. They're buying from you and selling for you. Uh, and we're talking millions of dollars uh, and uh, even millions. Uh, and these are four great leaders that know how to make money, help people and have fun. Everyone join the community that best serves you, that you best can serve. Unite yourself with the mission and with the frequency and an understanding of where you want to be or better. And everybody can help one another or especially with social media, know someone that can help one another. Uh, thank you so much, Mike. You're always here to help me. I am. Hey, I'm consistent. I'm consistent. <laughs> exactly. Well, please come join me in Vegas next week. We got Dane Cook. Austin Eckler, Forrest Griffin, Flex Lewis, so many more people going to be there. Uh, it'll be on the 9th. Uh, so come and join me. I'd love to see you. A dose okay, of positivity. I'm still, uh, we haven't put it up there in a while. I, I'm a, a diamond fuel guy. So I, I can't oh, tell I've you. Got how to, um, I'm getting more. I've got to get, send you more. I've only got a few left for you because I'm getting more, more done, like a special one. But I've only got boxes for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like I, well, I say boxes. boxes. <laughs> and Reluca's, and, and she looks like me when I'm uh, in Tahiti or somewhere. It's the middle of the night, except for I'm falling asleep on the show. He's falling asleep behind the scenes with that guy. Thank you so much, Reluca, for staying up all night. Uh, love you. Thank you, Mike Diamond. I'll see you guys soon. Thank you. Love you, mate. All right, everyone. Love you, mate. See you soon. Remember, everyone, be more interested than interesting. We'll be back tomorrow. Training on Friday. We'll be in Las Vegas next week. Come and join us, David at dmelter.com. I also will be in Acura after Vegas with Joe Montana, Gary Vaynerchuk, that's Gary V, Tim Story, and myself celebrating my day at a fire tour. We're going to have a birthday party afterwards as well. David at dmelter.com. Please join me. Be kind to your future self in the meantime. Do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone.